If you have a Bible or use your app, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 15 uh, today. And uh, this is Super Bowl Sunday. And on Super Bowl Sunday, the pastor is supposed to just kind of give you something soft so you can move on. Uh, <laughs> or get like the youth pastor to preach or do something like that. Or you do the really offensive passages that week because nobody's going to remember. Um, uh, that's not happening today. I've, we, uh, this teaching that I want to give you today is from a conversation I had with someone in December. So I've been kind of looking forward to this, and so it's, uh, we're going to have a really good time. But we're going to start in Matthew chapter 15 and kind of work our way through that. And uh, my Bible is sitting on my kitchen counter, so I'm going to use this thing. And uh, I have 88% of my battery left, so this could be long. All right. Um, <laughs> so... Let me read this story. We're in Matthew chapter 15, verse 29. It'll be on the screen so you can kind of catch it. Jesus went on from there, and the there is Tyre and Sidon, out on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And he walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put put them at his feet. And he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called to his disciples, or sorry, then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed such a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them. And he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over, And those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Jesus, a few weeks ago, we talked about Jesus has this miraculous moment where it's the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, it's a misnomer because there was 5,000 men. And in their culture, when they counted a group, that's how they counted the men. Uh, We wouldn't do that. (laughs) In this story, Jesus feeds 4,000, and we think, well, he must be getting tired, right? Like, you can only do 5,000 so many times, and then it starts to dwindle off. Uh, But Jesus here has this moment of healing, or these, uh, like, and by moment, I mean this, like, three-day, he goes up and sits down, and then spurred on by his compassion for the people, he apparently performs another miracle where he turns seven loaves and a few fish into uh, what did it like into uh, enough to feed maybe 10,000 people if we're trying to guess we don't know how many of those men brought a woman with them or their wife or, or their families and their children and things like that um, Jesus is uh, I'm, I want to go back to Mark for a second, because Jesus was in uh, Tyre and Sidon. We talked about this last week. Tyre and Sidon were Gentile cities out on the coast, and Jesus is a Jewish guy, and he went there to relax and get away with his disciples, 
Jesus advocates slowing down every now and then. He advocates taking a day off, all right? And uh, so he does that. Jesus loves Saturdays. Uh, and he, he goes over there, and uh, then he comes back, and he actually comes back to the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark uh, tell the same stories a lot of the time. Uh, some, like Bible scholars and archaeologists, think that maybe uh, Mark, well, we kind of know Mark existed at this date, and Matthew existed several years later, so there may have been, like the guy who wrote Matthew, Matthew, may have had a copy of, of Mark's manuscript and used it kind of as a guideline, like here's how we go. So when we're reading uh, Mark, we end up seeing a lot of the same stories or uh, understanding a lot of the same things that are happening. And at the end of Mark chapter 7, uh, it, it talks, Jesus says this, or the, the script says this about Jesus, Mark seven thirty one. Then he returned, he being Jesus, from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And then it goes through the healing and those kinds of things. Then in those days a great crowd gathered and they had nothing to eat and he called his disciples to them and said to them, I have compassion on this crowd. And then he does the miracle of feeding the 4,000. And it ends with this. Immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanthua. Uh, so there's some contrast there. Some in, at, the, at the end of Matthew, it says they went to Magdalene. At the end of Mark, sometimes it says Dalmathua, but some old texts say Magdalene, which is great about that because we don't have any archaeological or historical record of Magdalene. People think it might be Mary Magdalene's house or her town or something like that, uh, who she was one of the very early disciples, which kind of deconstructs the whole only men can follow Jesus rule. Um, uh, <laughs> Jesus does this wildly subversive stuff right below the surface, and we try to ignore it. Um, Jesus, in the Mark story, places Jesus in the Decapolis. And if you can think of, if you look at a map of Israel, there's kind of two lakes in Israel, right? We would call them lakes. They call them seas. They haven't seen a real ocean. And uh, so they have these two lakes, and one's called uh, the Sea of Galilee, or Lake Gennaraset. You'll see it called that sometimes. And on the one side, the west side, tends to be very uh, Jewish. All the Jewish people tended to settle over there. And then on the other side, from the southeast side, all the way down into like modern day, like Jordan, uh, that is uh, this region called the Decapolis. And the Decapolis is this group of 10 cities that is kind of has this unofficial um, kind of uh, there to in this together. The whole known world has been taken over by the Roman Empire. But the Decapolis in these 10 cities, uh, which goes from like uh, Gadre, the Gadra or Gadara, which is the Gad region of the Gadrines, uh, all the way down to a city called Philadelphia. There's these 10 cities that go down. Uh, it's kind of, they kind of get their own rule. And they're kind of proud of that. They're like independent. We're the Decapolis. We're different than everyone else. All right? Uh, we have these 10 cities and we're together. We're in this together. There's no official. Uh, it's kind of like if you've lived here a long time. It's like the, what they call the state of Jefferson. It's those people live down there who are convinced that there's something special, but they don't get to actually do anything about it. Uh, if you haven't heard of that, it's like a group of hippies that live in the mountains and eat mushrooms and think they're creating their own world. Um, but <laughs> that's not true, but it's what I think of it. So um, 
So they, this group of cities, kind of Rome let them kind of manage themselves a little bit and take care of themselves. And Jesus goes to that region. It's a very Gentile region. And when Jesus was in Tyre and Sidon, these other Gentile cities, he spoke specifically about how his primary mission was to reach the house of Israel, the Jewish people. That's why Jesus came to earth, to extend the people of God, beginning with the people of God. And so when he goes to these Gentile places, uh, he starts to act differently. He teaches differently. He behaves differently. And when he goes all the way over into the Decapolis, which would be the Gentile place around the Lake of Galilee, if you wanted to get bacon, you knew where to go. And, and they would, because bacon's not kosher, and so you couldn't get it on the east side of the, of the lake. And uh, so Jesus goes over, and I, I don't think it was for bacon. That would be in the text if it was. But, uh, <laughs> and we would not do communion. We would just have, like, bacon, right? Uh, but <laughs> you would want to go to that church, I know. Um, but Jesus goes over there and then starts performing miracles among unclean Gentile people when we put these texts together, in the passage that we see, it, starts, it says after Jesus was performing these miracles in Matthew 15, it says the crowds started giving glory to the God of Israel. Not to their gods, but to the God of this guy Jesus who came to heal them and apparently feed them and had compassion on them. And so in the Decapolis, which would have had Roman or Greek gods that they worshipped and pagan temples where they would do their sacrifices, it changes to where they're giving glory to the God of Israel. It, it's not their God. Do you see that? It's not the God that they serve or the God that they worship. It's they're giving glory to this God who's apparently come to visit. And they don't have this grand understanding of who Jesus is or who the God of Israel is and his global or universal reach that we would say, but they have enough of an understanding that they understand they need to give glory to this God. I don't understand this God, I don't have a handle on this God, but I know I should worship this God because of who he is and what he's doing. I don't know the theology. They couldn't tell you if they were justified by blood through something. They couldn't speak to you about the sanctification of their souls. They didn't know anything about what a denomination was. But they knew that something was cool about what was going on, and so we should give glory to that God of Israel. They probably don't even know his name. But I know there's something special about him. Jesus goes over to this region... And if you look at Jesus' outreach plan in Matthew chapter 15, if you go back to the beginning of this passage, it was in PowerPoint, because I left my Bible on the kitchen counter. Jesus went on, Jesus' outreach plan is this. Walk beside the Sea of Galilee. We'll go up on the mountain, sit down. Wouldn't that be a great outreach plan? We want to reach people and tell them about Jesus. So we want you to walk beside the water and then sit down on a mountain. <laughs> Probably the introverts here would be totally into that, right? <laughs> I mean, that's what Jesus wants me to share the gospel. I'm in with that. I can sit on a mountain. Like, maybe not the top, but, uh, you know, however high my car can get me. And the, uh, you, you would get, 
this seems like a terrible outreach plan, doesn't it? And so how, the, the question that we need to ask here is how do the great crowds come to him? In only like three days, all of a sudden we have great crowds. How do great crowds go to a weird man who walks beside water and then sits on a mountain? If that happened here today, would great crowds go look at the man who's sitting on the mountain? No. Unless we knew something about him. Unless something had happened before. If someone famous came and sat on a mountain, yeah, I'd take the kids up and go see. Whatever. I'd forget to pack a lunch. <laughs> you know? It, it would be normal. People would start saying it, and now we have social media, and so it would grow a lot faster, but in their day, they would just share it house to house, village to village, and all of a sudden, a crowd of as much as, at least 4,000 men and however many women and children gather up on this side of this mountain, and they're up there, and they're running out of food, but it's pretty cool because somebody who apparently is important enough has come up, walked beside our water, and then sat down on our mountain in a Gentile part of the world. So it would be like if we're the chosen people, or sorry, they're the chosen people and we're not, but someone from that people who says they're chosen has come over here. Some probably just went up to see what was going on, right? When a crowd like that starts gathering. And what they see is people being made whole. All sorts of different afflictions, afflictions blindness, being mute, speech impediments, being crippled, being lame. Jesus is healing these things. Jesus is making people whole, making them well. And if we heard of a guy who was sitting on the mountain who could make people well, I'd go to. And if he made my friends well, or people I knew, or even people I don't know, I would get excited about that. It's the same reason you share videos of kids who, you know, who uh, get blessed and are helped online, and you make us, it feels good when we see that kind of stuff. And this is what Jesus was doing. He kind of had a walk by the water, sit on the mountain, pull an Oprah kind of thing going on. And you're healed, and you're healed, and everybody's healed, right? And you want to go up there, and then you realize you have to pay taxes on what Oprah gave you, and it's all, it's unfortunate. Uh, but, but why would we go and see this person? If you back up to Matthew chapter 8, and if you have a Bible, you can mark this uh, next to Matthew chapter 15, right like a cross-reference, Matthew 8. If you have a pen, write this down. This is Matthew chapter 8. And when he, the he is Jesus, came to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gadarenes, which is the first city in the Decapolis, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. So two guys who were so demon-possessed that you couldn't walk down the road, they would beat you. And behold, they cried out, the demon-possessed men cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So the demons speak to Jesus. And now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, And these aren't like three little pigs. These would be like gross pigs, all right? And he said to them, go. So they came out, the demons came out, 
and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. And you can see very clearly this is a Gentile region, right? The Jews don't eat pork, and so they won't have a herd of pigs. It says we're in the Gadarenes. There's a couple demon-possessed guys blocking the road. And this herd of pigs runs down and drowns in the water, which would make that water unclean as well. The herdsmen fled. Going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came up to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Because Jesus kind of messed up the economics of their region. The Jewish people would read this story, kosher Jews would read this and be like, there's a win, right? Less pigs, more kosher people. And like, there's a political win or an economic win for the conservative Jewish movement. But Jesus goes over there and he heals two demon-possessed guys, two. And then the people of the city go, here's what Jesus did. He killed all our pigs. Please, Jesus, leave. But there's these two guys that have a different story. Two guys have this story. Two guys that you know. Those crazy demon-possessed guys. The reason that my dad makes us walk the long way into town. Those two crazy demon-possessed guys aren't there anymore. And it's great, because now we can just take the main road. These two demon-possessed guys that lived out in the tombs that would come out and act all crazy, and were violent, now moved into the city. Got an apartment, got a job, got married, had kids, acted normal. And they had this insane story. I used to be like this. And now I'm like this. And the difference is, this random meeting with this guy named Jesus... And can you imagine in a small village, a small town like Gadarenes, there's these two guys who everybody knows because you can't travel because of these two idiots who apparently had demons. And this guy fixed that. It's easy to see these guys sharing the story a lot, right? Wouldn't you share that story? If your life was terrible, and now your life is not, you can't tell me you don't share the story of the people who helped you. Right? When you were young, and now you're mature. When you didn't know how to do your job, and now you do. When you were lost as a parent, and then you met these other parents, and they helped you, and now you're good at being a parent. When you were a teenager and you were trying to figure it out and you had this coach or youth leader or teacher who mentored you and you still tell the story of how great that guy is or that woman is. That's the story these guys had. And by my estimation, they taught that this man came over and healed us. And that's a divine thing that's happening. And so there's a God over there. And so we think we should worship that God or at least be aware of that God and at least like that God. And from what I can see, it looks like these two guys were church planters. 
And they were successful church planters because when Jesus came back, they had 10,000 people in their church ready to go up on the mountain and listen to the speaker who came to town. Do you see that? Two guys who were demon-possessed. Now, if two formerly de- I sit on a board in our denomination. It's called the Board of Church Extension. I get to vote on these church plants and stuff. It's pretty fun. Uh, really, I read proposals and go, well, it seems like a good idea. <laughs> like, are you ready to suffer? All right, let's go. All right? Like, uh, it's, church planting doesn't happen because people approve it. But when we approve these, people come with a plan. And when we planted the grove, I gave a 50-page proposal to the Board of Church Extension because we had a plan. We had a plan for resources. We had a plan for reaching people. We had a plan of what we're going to do when we reach those people. We had a place. We had an idea of how to set that place up. We had an idea of how to sing, and so we started a band as well. We learned, uh, I wrote out, I keep a long sermon schedule. I know what I'm preaching in 2015. Uh, and, And so we have all that put together. We have outreaches put together. We have barbecues. We have this, we have that. We have a secure children's ministry. All right, so now we're ready to plant a church. Now we're ready. When we have denomination, affiliation, we have some structure, we know what our uh, doctrine is, we have elders, we have trustees, we have a finance team for accountability. These two had two guys who didn't even know what the God's name was. (laughs) I think we should all be happy about this God. All right, and they start a church and it grows to 10,000. That's acceptable. (laughs) They would probably get a gold star when they went to the denomination meeting, right? I don't know. We don't get gold stars in our denomination. Maybe we should start that. But but there is this this weirdness because we know what church is, right? And we know the structures and we know the things that we need to put together. And we believe in starting new churches and so we help other churches and those kinds of things. And other churches learn from our experiences that in the, you know, whatever we're able to do for others, we do. We have churches that visit us, or people who are planting churches visit us, and we give them everything, that we, all the information that we possibly can. These two had nothing, had no, no business plan, no structure. They didn't have a discipleship plan. They didn't have a Bible, and they go, and then when Jesus comes back to town, thousands of people are going out there thousands like i i want to think that one of the two demon possessed was a killer preacher and the other was a killer singer right because that's what it takes right (laughs) when i look at your plan i want to know that you have a killer preacher and you have a killer worship leader because that's what the people want (laughs) but they didn't even have guitars (laughs) so i don't know how that what they they pre-organs too so who knows what kind of music they had in this church but this, it wasn't even about that, was it? It was about a couple of people telling their story over and over and people ending up, when Jesus comes to town, yeah, I definitely want to hear what that guy has to say. I definitely want to get close to that guy. I don't know anything about that guy, except I know these two, and they're different than they used to be, and they told me it's about that guy. And so I want to go over there. And they end up, this large crowd ends up in a Gentile region. The people who the Jewish people were like ethnically prejudiced against. 
end up glorifying the God of Israel? Probably the most successful church planters in history. (laughs) No idea what they're doing, except they have this great story. Our church, uh, or churches, any church, can fall into these traps of thinking that growing the church or making the church bigger, some people think that's bad, right? If more people start coming to your church, they might sit in your seat. <laughs> it doesn't happen as much in our seat because they're not that great of seats anyways, all right? You'd be like, I'll stand, same difference. Hurts my back less when I stand, so. Uh, but there is this, you know, this, this idea that if more people come to my church, I won't know everyone. Because hilariously, you think you know everyone because you recognize the six people that sit around you every week, Right? And you arrive at the same time, like if you arrive a little late and you arrive with the late crowd, you know them. And so you're surrounded by your associations. If I asked you to point at the people in the row in front of you and the row behind you and tell me all of their names, I promise you can't. But I'm sure you know them and you're close. Because the people behind you, you know which ones can sing and which ones can't, right? (laughs) If you're really good at church and you can't sing, you sit near the front. That's the best way to hide it. The speakers drown me out, or drown you out, if you're a bad singer. But, uh, <laughs> but we just kind of have this feeling like, I like this, and I want this to stay the way it is. And we betray the very like, impetus of the gospel. We forget that at one point, we didn't know Jesus. And now we do. And that's because of someone Jesus didn't appear to any of you. He used another human, or any of us, he used another human to tell us a story and see it in their eyes and see it in their life. And then we decided that that story carries meaning and that's what we want to put our faith and our trust and our hope in. And so when we start thinking about churches, you, some people will think, no, it shouldn't grow. Other pe- there's another group that thinks, well, that's the, the staff job right? Like, why would I tell people about Jesus? Isn't that what we hired you for? And in that case, you hired the wrong. I'm terrible at telling people about Jesus. It is so, because I tell them too much, or too truthfully. I had a guy ask me if he was going, so you think I'm going to hell, don't you? And I said, well, so do you. Uh, (laughs) Apparently, that's... I'm not like Captain Smooth when it comes to those kinds of things, All right. which you probably could have guessed. But, but there is this kind of, like, it, there is this, like, uh, professionalization of the ministry that we can easily fall into. And it happens when the pastors start wearing robes and standing on a stage and being, using holy words and stuff and... I see it when pe- my friends find out that I'm a pastor, or I make a new friend, they find out I'm a pastor, and I see them mentally trying to remember how many swear words they've used, right? <laughs> it's uh, you, it just kind of, it's the way our culture kind of falls into that trap. But the truth is that apparently what it takes to plant churches is to be able to tell people about how your life changed. To be able to say, I was like that, now I'm like this, 
It's because of this. And maybe Jesus didn't heal you personally. For me, I can point at mentors and youth pastors and youth leaders when I was young, Sunday school teachers. We didn't have Awana. We had Boys Brigade and Pioneer Girls because they were, girls were against the rules. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure that the, uh, my parents probably appreciated this, but, uh, if, and I would appreciate for my daughter. But there's this kind of uh, separation thing. And I can tell you about my Boys Brigade leader. His name was Al. He had really thick glasses. And he was patient with me, and that taught me something. We built these things. They're supposed to look like ducks, and I put my feathers on backwards. I was terrible, all right? Terrible. I am worse at woodwork than I am at sharing the gospel. (laughs) But, But when you have these people, and I can say, I was like this, and I had this guy, and he invested in me because of what he believed in Jesus, and what he believed about who God is, And now I'm like this. And so I believe in God. And now I try to do the same thing for other people. If you want to plant churches, you have to be mediocre at that. At least mediocre. In our culture, uh, we're kind of going through this fun transition. When you were young, you might remember there were books and uh, uh, fun stuff like 10,000 Reasons Why Jesus is Real or something like that. And they... And we can reason out, and, and people would read uh, Mere Christianity, which is C.S. Lewis's, which if you haven't re- read, you absolutely should. It's incredibly difficult to read, and then you can brag about reading it. So, um, oh, you haven't read Mere Christianity? Oh, you know, that <laughs> it works. Um, and, and so you, you can reason, and you can explain, and you can say, here is why, and here's the words, and let's have lunch, and I'm going to tell you the words, and there you go. And then... You will explain it, and I will have answers to your objections that I would learn in my evangelism class, and then with just words, we would be able to. And that still happens today. But it happens less and less. If you listen, uh, uh, the great, the great, great Billy Graham has actually talked about when he was younger, the way that God seemed to be moving was in these large, they called them crusades then, now they call them festivals, but where he would share with his words and thousands and thousands of people became Christians. And the great Billy Graham, who is the master of this, who preached to more people on earth than anyone in history, says it seems like God is moving in new ways today. When the guy who's the best at something says it seems like God is doing other things too, maybe we should know this. Because it seems like people today, if you go back 50 years, and 50 years are probably too long, but there was this process that you went through. You would believe in God, and then you would belong to a church, and then you would grow in your faith. And it seems like those are all mixed up. So there are people who are growing in their faith who don't believe and don't belong, or there are people who belong to a church who aren't really sure what they believe and maybe are growing, maybe aren't. I mean, you can see people around you who look everything like Christians, but they're not Christians. Being a Christian, our definition here is that you put your full hope and trust in Jesus. He becomes your Savior, and he becomes the Lord of your life, like you live for him is the words that we use. And there are some who belong to churches, even the Grove, and we encourage this. 
be a part of what's going on here and see if belief doesn't come along too. We don't check. That's why we don't have like a, a check. If you're a member, you get to sit here. Or if you really believe, you get to sit there. We don't have a roster of who gets to take communion and who doesn't. Because there's some who belong, and then they're going to grow, and then they're going to believe. And, and those things get all mixed up. And what I hear, what I want to give you, this is uh, a special treat for the introverts. So if you don't have a pen, get out your phone so you want to write this down. I'm going to give you an introvert's guide to helping people become, an introvert's guide to church planting maybe. <laughs> but what I hear over and over, over and over, is that Grove people are out living in our community. I'm sure there are Christians from other churches. I'm not saying anything about that. What I'm saying is when I have conversations and we say, yeah, my friend asked me when our church meets. And I told him Sunday at 10. And on Wednesday and Thursday, everyone feels like getting up early on Sunday. Everyone, because you have a lot to do and you want to go try that church out. Sunday at 9, nobody feels like it. You didn't feel like getting up this morning, all right? I won't tell you if I did or not. But there is this, like, it's really easy to talk about what time church is. Here's what I want you to do. Say, yeah, it's at 10. Give me your number. I'm going to text you Saturday night and remind you. That's step two. Step one is actually live for Jesus so that people notice and they say, what's wrong with you? And you say, I go to the Grove. And, <laughs> and, all right. <laughs> and, then you'll say, and then you'll say, you should be there Sunday at 10. Give me your number. I'm going to text you on Saturday night. So you don't actually have to talk to them because I know you don't like talking and you don't like using your phone for a phone so you can text them. <laughs> And be like, hey, it's Saturday night. You should be there tomorrow morning. And so you text them. Then you get your, that's step two. Step three, you get your butt up and get here on time so your friends don't show up and feel lost. Have you ever visited a church and you don't know anybody? Some of you might be visiting here today and you don't know anybody. It's the most intimidating thing in the world. Because you don't know how you're supposed to dress. When we first started... We could tell the people who are new because they were in their seats 10 minutes early in a suit. I felt terrible for them. <laughs> like even you go and sit down and talk to them and it just feels bad because you're like, you are sweating, you know? Like, you can take all that off if you want. I mean, just tank top it. It's cool. And, <laughs> but, but there is... So step two is you text them. Step three is you show up and you sit with them, Right? Really, really easy. Step four is you give them somewhere to eat lunch. You go to the grocery store, you buy a lasagna and some garlic bread, a couple two liters, and you eat it with them for 20 bucks, all right? Step four involves cleaning your house. Maybe the highest commitment in all four steps. <laughs> all right? But you can have someone over for 20 bucks. If they have a lot of kids, it might cost you 30, all right? But that's all it is. If you don't have 20 bucks, tell me. I'll give you 20 bucks. If you're inviting people to church and having them over for lunch, I'll give you my 20 bucks, all right? Uh, not too many of you, though, because I don't have any. <laughs> but but you, get these, you get these four steps, and there you go. And here's the thing. It's not that I believe that you should not tell your friends about Jesus, but you should bring them here so the professionals can. I'm totally against that, all right? And if you've been here a lot, sometimes I'll say, if you don't know about Jesus, 
ask the people who brought you today because they can tell you. Because I don't believe that the professionals are better at this. Here's what I do believe. When you show up at the Grove, you'll experience what Jesus is. And we've worked really, really hard. Our leaders, our volunteers have worked really, really hard that people would have an experience of what and who Jesus is when they come to the Grove. From people smiling in the parking lot, and you've had those weeks where a smile changes everything, so have I, or someone with an umbrella actually respecting you changes everything. And they, you will experience welcoming, you'll experience that we value your family. We work really hard to have relevant and engaging and high-skilled worship. We have an incredible band. Uh, like a church our side is in a city like this is incredibly blessed with the level of practice that our band puts down. Our, their kids will go into an incredible children's ministry with volunteers that don't just serve because they're checking a box, but they actually see their relationship with kids as being meaningful because someday these kids are going to say, I was like this, and I had Jason, or I had Greg, or I had Mr. Bowers, and now I'm like this, right? They will hear the truth. They will probably be offended in an appropriate way <laughs> if they're Seahawks fans. <laughs> but they will we'll talk about the scripture. But in all of that, what they'll see is a group of people who live what Jesus is. Does that make sense? Because you can argue against me. I can tell you my doctrine, I can tell you what I believe, and you can argue against me all day long. But it's really hard for you to argue against the people that I am with. The people who care for me when I'm down, and the people that I care for when they're down. The people that I celebrate with, that I cry with, that I live life with. And we call that a church. It's really hard for you to argue with what the church has contributed to the world. And we've got some bad things or things we've screwed up, like anyone does it, right? But the church is doing some great things, too. Our church is doing some great things. And it's really hard to argue with that. You can say, yeah, your doctrine is wrong. You hate people that aren't like you. All right. And while you're busy arguing against what we say, we're going to be over here caring for the poor. We're going to be over here taking care of orphans. We're going to be over here serving in these different organizations in our city. We're going to be getting together as a church and loving our city. Well, you spend your time arguing against us. Because when people experience what it is, sorry, what Jesus is, what God's love is, it's hard to argue against that. And so you don't have to be, like, you don't have to be awesome at sharing your faith. You don't have to be awesome to be some kind of weird church planter. All you need to do is to be able to say, 
I was like this, there was this, now I'm like this. And the thing that changed me, I attributed to Jesus. Because the person who changed me, they attributed it to Jesus. And they live for Jesus. And so that's what I'm doing. And I don't have all the doctrine figured out. I don't know when the tribulation is happening. When it happens, I'm going, right? Or the rapture, that's the thing. <laughs> but I don't know what that's going to look like. But I do know how I'm going to live. And I do know how my people live. And I do know that we mess it up and that we need to seek forgiveness. But maybe that's what's most beautiful, that we forgive each other even when we mess it up. That as a church, we love other groups of Christians that aren't like us. That maybe even believe some minor things that are different than us. And we're all right. Because the life that we're living is changing. And all of a sudden, this huge crowd shows up because they've heard and they want to see and they want to interact with this guy, Jesus, because they want to be whole. And they see a group of people walking around who are hurt, who have a history, who have baggage, but they're whole. They have Jesus. So this is... <laughs> This is one of those sermons where I just tell you straight up, you need to do something about it. You can't say, well, God, I'm going to live my Christian life, I'm going to keep my head down, and I'm going to behave, and I'm going to get to the end. Because if two formerly demon-possessed guys can tell a village about Jesus and grow a church to around 10,000, you can invite your friend to church. You don't even have to talk to them. God gave you texting. <laughs> All right? Teenagers, you are not allowed to write that down. My mom, God gave us texting. Right? That's not... All right? But there is... It's not like some high, crazy, complicated thing. And it's not like the grove go, grows or because or we... I don't even care if the grove grows. I care about people knowing Jesus. If people come here and get saved and go to some other church, awesome. We could use the seats, right? Like our room is only so big. That's like, like I'm, I don't want you to think, like <laughs> I get emails from other young pastors who are sucking up to me because I'm on these stupid boards and they say, we heard your church is the fastest growing one, congratulations. Like I have something to do with that, right? Like, like I can work harder and our church grows. That's not what we see in the Bible. We see people telling their story and God deciding, yep, that's what we're going to do. And I don't think that that means we can just, you know, our band's going to pull out kazoos and our sermons are going to suck and our children are going to watch videos, right? <laughs> uh, that's, some of you are like, I would come for that. Oh, gosh. That's terrible. You're missing the point altogether, all right? But it's not, it's not like we don't believe we play a part in this. But what we really believe is that we play a part in this. If I invite my friends to church and the church hates each other, I might as well not invite them. Does that make sense? If I invite my friends and I say, you need to come to my church, which I say frequently, they'll talk to me about their life and I'll say, I know how to fix that. Jesus fixes that. You need to come to church. It's at 10. What's your number? I'll text you on Saturday. And then I find them. And we sit together, and then they come over, and then life happens. 
because you will experience what Jesus is because of a church being who Jesus is. Not because you've been convinced by words or not because we have a good plan, but because we're people who are real, who have Jesus. So I want to pray that way for you. And I don't want to guilt trip you. I really want to empower you. Because I would bet that when we talk about those two or three people who you would love to see become Christians in your family or at your school or at your work, I bet you could name them like that. And I bet you would love it. Like, I bet you would love to see that happening. And that's how I want to pray. That you would get what you actually would love to see happen. Does that make sense? So this isn't a guilt trip. Don't feel bad. Feel like if two crazy, violent, demon-possessed guys can do it, you're probably more normal than them. And you can probably pull that off. So let me pray for you. Lord, you know, some days uh, we don't feel like we're too many rungs up the ladder from these crazy demon-possessed guys. Some days we fail and we think how, like, I am such a bad witness. Or we're impatient or we're just tired or we're hungry or just life has made us angry. And I want to pray, first of all, that you would change us. That we would see our life transforming, transformed and transforming because of who you are and our closeness and our encounter with you. Where we're broken, make us whole because we don't have to be broken. And then, Lord, for those two or three names that we could just tell you right now, I would love to see this person become a Christian. I would love to see this person living for Jesus. I just love that. For those people, Lord, I pray that you would just give us the opportunity and the ability to be able to share with them and maybe live life with them, maybe even bring them to our church so they see the love that a group of Christians has for each other, the love that God gives. And maybe they would glorify the God of Israel. They might not know him right away. They might not even know his name or what he likes or anything about it. But that they would have a heart change that understands that we have a God who loves us and we worship him because of that. We pray this, Lord. To you alone, because you alone can answer this prayer. Amen.